This is uh, Jonah Miller. You haven't seen Jonah in a while, so say, hi, Jonah. And this is Kyle. He lives on the left coast, and you haven't seen him in a while. Say, hi, Kyle. All right, great. Both of these men are serving in our States military. And Jonah is in the Navy, and you are just hearing your orders. You just got your orders. Where are you going? I'm going to Virginia. Okay, he's going to Virginia with his orders. Kyle, you'll remain in San Diego for some time? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a military police right now, so okay. that's a non-deployable unit. Okay. So we're on the base security for the base. Okay. Well, still, uh, Grant Nelson recently also joined the Marines. We have multiple people that are on our prayer journal that you can pick up outside uh, that are in our military uh, forces, and uh, we pray for them weekly uh, on Sunday nights at our Interactive Bible Fellowship, which is tonight at 6 o'clock if you want to come to that. I just saw these two men, and I said, I've got to have them, and I've got to pray for them. I I miss them. I miss having some influence in their lives, and so um, I'm going to call you to Jesus, and I'm going to call you to Jesus today, okay? I call you both to Christ and to take Christ with you to Virginia and back to San Diego, brother. I call you to follow God and be holy as the Lord is holy, even though that's sometimes even harder in the military. You face real tough challenges and all types of people and lots of influence, but I pray the Holy Spirit will be huge inside of you and live through you, Okay? All right, let me pray. Father in heaven, I give you Kyle, I give you uh, Jonah, I give you all of the men and women in our, in our military forces from our church, and, and uh, pray, Father, that you would continue to, to uh, work in them, give them your word in great, great doses. Put these two men in churches, um, and uh, Kyle's wife in church as well with him, and help them to keep following Jesus. Give them your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, man. Thanks for being here. Um, I wanted to also just share with you that, uh, that the Crocker family is uh, mourning the loss of Glenda's mother uh, this week. She passed away after a pretty massive stroke a week before, and she's um, going to um, her memorial service all the way down there in Alabama is going to be, or is it Mississippi? I think it's Mississippi. Uh, is going to be this next weekend. So be in prayer for Tom and Glenda, but also Megan and Lucas Fanton, who are also worshipers here at our church as they'll head down there uh, to memorialize. And just pray that the gospel would go forth there. Our friend Leon Vandenberg um, is home and resting after a heart valve uh, procedure um, this week, and you can be thinking of her. Um, now, I just want you to know that this uh, short section of Acts chapter 2 that we're going to cover, there is more zeal in this section than I have. And you're accustomed to me being excited up here. You're accustomed to me being a little loud and bouncing around a little bit. There is no way that I could assert zeal through my body in a way that could match the zeal of the gospel that is in this passage that we are about to encounter. All right? So let's pray that this morning we would be receivers of the Word of God, the very words of God, and that God with divine power would meet us here as we enter the Scripture and we allow it to speak to us. Let me pray. Father, now completely shred and, and, and toss out all unbelief in the room, all of our apathy, all of our 
uh, indifference to you, Heavenly Father, all the things that we thought we were going to do and just go through complacent religion again here this morning for an hour and wait for lunch to come. Father, toss all of that out and make us true vessels and hearers of your word here this morning and responders to your word this morning. I pray, Father, that we would be a people that embrace what you have to say to us, but specifically in Acts chapter 2, that we embrace the whole of the gospel and be reminded again of how Jesus took us from hopelessness and helplessness to new hope and new life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're going to actually uh, read some scripture out loud here this morning in a, in a moment. Um, not this passage, but it'll appear on the screen. And our hope this morning is that a very exact and powerful clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ would come to us as we enter the study of this first public call in the book of Acts to respond to the complete gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would request something of you up front, and that is that you place yourself in this story, that you put yourself there with those Jews who had traveled from many distant lands to come there for the Feast of Weeks for Pentecost, and you heard the sound of rushing wind. And then you gathered there in that place where Peter and the other disciples were sharing the gospel and explaining that the reason why they could speak in the different languages of all the people from all the nations around the world was because God was pouring out his spirit because a new age, the messianic age, had come. And they were explaining Messiah and giving the proofs of Messiah just as, as Pastor Jeremy did last week. And he gave the proofs of the miracles, the message, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And how God made him both Lord and Christ for all people. Insert yourself in this story. Become one of these hearers of this public call of the gospel. Don't let this be another complacent religious day for yourself where you're sitting in the pew waiting for the hour to conclude, waiting for that closing song, doing a mental checklist on your grocery shopping, wondering whether the Lions will win today. They're not going to win today, okay? All right, it's settled. Find yourself in the courtroom of the Almighty because the first thing that is going to happen at the conclusion of this message is a hammer of judgment is going to occur. A seizure of the heart in the, in the hearers of this message is going to cause them to be so cut to the heart that they're going to say, what do we do? What do we do? Align yourself with these first century witnesses as God passed sentence through Peter's message. The verdict is guilty, and you and I owe a debt that we cannot pay. All right? Now, Jesus, is gonna, Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18 before he goes to the cross in his public ministry about the kingdom of heaven. We're going to show it up here on the screen. And I'd like for us this morning to stand in recognition of God's Word, and all of us to read this brief passage together in Matthew chapter 18. Would you do that? Thank you, lovers of God's Word. Thank you, followers of Jesus Christ, followers of the Word of God. Now, this is a story of the great debtor and a king. Now, it's not the whole story. We're only going to read all the way to verse 27, and we're going to stop there, and we're going to talk about it briefly. All right? Are we ready to read God's Word? All right, beginning in verse 23. Therefore, 
the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, so why does Jesus tell this story? Who are the hearers of Jesus in this story, and why does he tell it this way? Because if you are one of the first listeners, and this is the first time you've heard this story, you probably think that that servant went out with great gratitude He said wonderful things about his king and his master, and he went out and practiced the same forgiveness and compassion that his king did, and yet that's the exact opposite of what he did. The scripture here tells us that 10,000 talents, the equivalent of millions of dollars of money, what, what would you do? What would you do? How would you react if all of your debts were canceled all at once? If your debt was called, everything that you owed, everything that you had to pay in life, it was all called all at once, what would you do? This guy, who was just forgiven millions of dollars of debt, you know what he does? He turns around and he goes and gets another servant and he throws him in jail for 500 bucks for just a few talents, the amount of just a few thousands of dollars, a drop in the bucket compared to the kind of forgiveness that he just experienced from his king. If we stop in the story right there where we stopped, we say, this guy surely would have responded positively to this abundant grace and forgiveness, but he doesn't. But he doesn't. Jesus goes on to say, that the other servant saw what this servant did. After being greatly graced by his king, he goes out and he throws this buddy of his in jail for just a a few thousand dollars. They go back and they tell the king and the king becomes angry and he immediately has the man seized and has him thrown into prison until he can pay that debt, which is debt he'll never be able to pay, by the way. Somehow this servant did not see his desperation. He did not see the bondage that his debt would hold him in for his entire life. His actions are an insult to his king. And so what does this king do? Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy upon you? Have you received the gospel? If you've really received the gospel, you ought to be living the gospel. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. You see, the man's debt was being called, and he was going to lose everything. Do you remember what the passage we read? He was going to be sold, his wife and his children scattered. He was going to lose it all, everything that he had. But the king says, I will pay that debt 
But that, yet this man behaves as if he never owed a single penny. There was no impact from the master's forgiveness. There was no life change. Now part of the telling of that parable in Matthew 18 is to condemn Israel who has not been responding to their gracious and forgiving God, who has been rejecting up until this point Messiah who has come, Jesus who's standing there and sharing that parable with him. Peter's going to bring the whole gospel message to us about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. And he's going to call us to that whole gospel. And the whole gospel message calls us to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Charles Spurgeon once said this about attempting to win people to Jesus who do not see their desperation and their bondage to sin. He said, it is idle to attempt to heal those who are not wounded, to attempt to clothe those who have never been stripped, to make rich those who have never realized their poverty. The whole gospel message calls us to Jesus, Savior and Lord. If we were to recognize what the gospel says about us and then says about our Savior, we would make Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the gospel calls us to. It's not just an offer of riches, an upgrade in status, but it is a rescue from desperation. It is the only key to a life locked in sin. And we come up with all kinds of sin strategies, all kinds of sin cover-ups, all kinds of ways to make up for what we have done. But we are going to read here this morning in the call of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, a call to see the desperation of my own sin, to repent of my own sin, a call to align my life in obedience to the Lord who provides that key himself, an offer of forgiveness and abundant life in the Spirit to those who would gladly receive its scandalous grace. I had a miserable afternoon and evening and night of sleep yesterday. Miserable, all right? Because I did what I shouldn't have done. I knew I shouldn't have done it. I knew the consequences of doing it, and I still did it. My mother and father-in-law were in town this past week, and they left to go back to her Cedarville University class reunion uh, just a couple days ago. But in, in, their, in their parting, we had purchased food and all kinds of things that they would enjoy too. And so we had a sub-sandwiches night. We had chips. And we had sour cream and onion dip, right? And I am becoming more, more and more violently intolerant of lactose. I saw that sour cream and onion dip in the refrigerator yesterday, and I said, oh, just, just a little taste won't hurt. So I dipped a few chips. I was waiting for my chicken to heat up in the toaster oven. And those chips, they didn't satiate my hunger, and my body received them, received them as if it was receiving living water. They were like, my body was like, oh, we haven't tasted this in so long. And so I dipped and had more, and I dipped and had more, and I dipped and had more, and then there was no more. And an hour later, I went from 200 pounds to 6,000 pounds. I ballooned up like a hippopotamus right there in the chair, and I complained to my wife and daughter 
for hours after that. And you know what they said? You knew! You knew what you were doing! You knew the consequences and you still chose! Do we have to lock the refrigerator? And Peter's going to call us to a gospel here this morning where we have to recognize that we are sinners, that we, just like those first hearers, we put Jesus on the cross because of our sin, and we are guilty before God, and that there is no way out of that other than through Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins. And that the gospel not only calls us to recognize and see our sin, to want to find the only way through Jesus out of our sin, but then to align ourselves with Jesus as our Lord and Master after this great debt that Jesus pays for us. That's what we're going to see in the gospel here this morning. Take a look down at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. It says, now then, when they heard this, what did they hear? They heard... In verse 36, the final statement uh, of proof by Peter, he had established the whole kerygma that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ had proven himself as Messiah through his miracles, through his public ministry, through his messages, through his innocent death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension. And so he says there in verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ, your passage might state in verse 36. And it says there, what is true conversion? What is true conversion? You get a glimpse of it right here in verse 37, because here's where, here's where conversion begins. Conversion begins with a spirit of conviction, and that spirit of conviction convinces us otherwise of our ability to work our way out of our problem and to turn to Jesus. True conversion is the offspring of conviction, says John MacArthur. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? Come on, you've been at that question in your life a few times, right? So far lost that you couldn't find your way out of your lostness. So caught in the act with your hand in the cookie jar that you could hear the gavel pounding of your judgment. We have all been there at that place. Brothers, what shall we do? Helpless and hopeless to change our estate, knowing that we are condemned in judgment. And here's the great thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of hopelessness and helplessness that Jesus can meet. It is there at this place where we recognize that we, dead in our transgressions and sin, need to be made alive by Jesus, that the hope of the gospel comes in. It's at this moment that the hearers of the message are affected in the deepest way imaginable. They are cut, the scripture says, to the heart. John MacArthur describes the Greek here as it being a quick dagger straight to the heart. Now, I don't want to, parents, explain this more to your kids later, but a dagger to the heart, a literal physical dagger to the heart would cause each one of us to be only thinking one thing, We wouldn't be thinking, have I picked up the mail? 
We wouldn't be thinking about changing out the laundry. We wouldn't be thinking about what we're going to watch on TV tonight. We would be thinking only one thing. How can I survive? How can I live? And these men hearing that they were responsible, these men and women hearing that they were responsible for Jesus being put on that cross, that the very Messiah that they had expected in their Jewish tradition is the one that they put on the cross and killed, they say, brothers, what shall we do? Messiah had, Messiah had died, and they had done it. And the realization that they had personal guilt, personal responsibility for the death of Messiah Jesus, it filled them with horror and with desperation. And the Messiah had expected to come and to rule, they had expected to come and rule the world in righteousness is now the judge of their killing their expected king. And this is how the gospel calls. It's a part of how the gospel calls. It calls us to see our own guilty sins. The first place that we see ourselves in this text is this, is that we all had a part in the death of Messiah. The scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. And the scripture tells us that only one innocent Messiah, the God and mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, is the only one that could save us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, Corinthians says. We're called to recognize that we had a part in the death of Messiah. It was for my sins that Jesus died on that cross. And we're also called to recognize that there is no human way out of our sins. What had the people heard and practiced? They practiced Yom Kippur, a day of atonement. They confessed all the sins on the scapegoat. They, they had that, that one uh, reliable sacrifice that the high priest would perform in the Holy of Holies and the temples to remove sin from them. And now they're hearing that the very one who absolves from sin, the very one that you go to and through to have your sins removed, the Lamb of God... God has made both Lord and Christ. He's the Savior, and He's the Lord. We've got to recognize our own guilty sins, recognize that we had a part in the death of Messiah, but also recognize that there's no way out of our sin. The servant in that first story in Matthew 18 says, give me more time, I will pay the debt. And the king, knowing the servant's heart, says, no. Prison and torture for a debt that he'll never be able to pay. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says this Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Right? You're going, okay, we're halfway through the message here, Clint, and it's kind of a downer. This really isn't fun to hear. That's a part of the gospel. Paul said the gospel is offensive. It offends the hearer the same way that when Jesus told that story in Matthew 18 would have offended some of the hearers when they heard of how wicked this one guy is. And they would have said, that's not me. And it is us. It's us. We're the offenders 
The gospel's offensive because it says you and I, we really need a savior. I went out to watch a, a soccer game yesterday and one of the boys that I like to go and watch play soccer, um, I said, how'd your game go? And he went, oh, really, really bad. And I said, how bad? He went 10 to two bad. I was like, that was bad, that was bad. He goes, well, we, we, we really only have four good players on our team. One guy is a really good defender but then there are three really good offenders <laughs> on the team. And I thought about that, and I thought about all that I had been studying in the gospel, and I thought, you know, I'm a really good offender. I'm a really good offender. And yet the gospel can take me from my helplessness and my hopelessness and take that offense away through God's son, Jesus. There's good news still coming here. And Peter gives the only saving, the only gracing, correct answer when they say, brothers, what shall we do? He says this. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the word repent there, it means to turn completely around. Repent means to turn, do a 180, away from what? Away from my sin and turn to whom? To the righteous one, to Jesus Christ. So that's the call. The call is to completely walk away from a life that you once had, a life that is marked by sin and a nature that we all have toward sin, that we are bent toward. The first call is to repent to turn around completely. But the second part is to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, are we saying, oh, wait a second, there's a work necessary for the gospel? No, we need to understand in the context of what Jesus was teaching there. We need to understand mikvah just a little bit, all right? So let's show the pictures of mikvah there on the screen, all right? And um, actually, from the southern steps leading up to the Temple Mount where Heather and I were in January, you can see from the southern steps a mikvah that is really close to the spring of Gihon. And uh, you can see um, it's not an abandoned mikvah, it's a preserved mikvah, but it's not currently being used. But you can see a mikvah. And a mikvah is a, is a bath, a ritual bath, in which you're called to immerse yourself three times, sometimes seven times, but usually three times you're called to immerse yourself in mikvah. And the reason why you as a Jew would go and experience and practice uh, this ritual bath. And by the way, there are mikvahot all around Jerusalem, and there would have been multiple mikvahs all around Jerusalem in Jesus' day, even as Peter was saying what he was saying. There would have been multiple available right then and there mikvah um, as Jesus, as Peter was speaking. Okay? And so it's a ritual bath. Um, and it's used for cleansing for the Jew to prepare for a new day, a new encounter with God. It's an act of readying. And so, like a woman might be finishing up her cycle and her uncleanness is about to, to end, and so it's going to mark a new period of cleanness. Okay? A pilgrim may have come from a long journey to come for uh, Pesach, for Passover, or uh, for uh, Pentecost, the feast of, of, of first fruits feast. Um, and so in getting there, they go and they experience mikvah because they're about to have a new encounter with God. It's a new day that they're going to experience. It was for returning to cleanness. It was for uh, new hope. Um, uh, for, uh, in returning to a new day or a new encounter uh, with God. So people, not Peter, not only calls 
these hearers to repent of their sins, but now to go and experience mikvah, not in the Jewish way, but now in allegiance to Jesus Christ to represent the forgiveness of sins. What Peter is saying is, is we don't just repent. We don't just give lip service to God and repent, but now align your life. The people had, up until that very day, every mikvah they had experienced was for cleansing. It was maybe for repentance that John had called them to in uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, who knows what it was for? Now it is to show your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You now belong to Jesus. You're allied with Jesus. Your life is going to align itself in obedience with Jesus. And then he finishes out the phrase, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, in verse 23, if you were to back up, you would see there in Peter's message where he says, but God knew what would happen. God knew what would happen. God foreordained the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. He knew, he knew that guilty people would put Jesus on the cross and kill him. And it says, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and you killed him. Okay? So that forgiveness of sin was, that was all foreordained. It was prearranged by God. And so that baptism in the name of Jesus Christ is not to get forgiveness, it is to represent that God now makes us all clean, that we have gone from dead in our sins to alive in Jesus Christ. And finally, the fourth part of this gospel call, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive the promised Holy Spirit, which was promised in John chapter 14. Where uh, John, where Peter, Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send a spirit to you. And you're going to receive this spirit. This spirit is going to give you all kinds of new experience in righteousness and in power. Right? So let's see the gospel in this one whole verse that Peter shares. Jesus, my Savior, has paid the debt of my sins. Sins that I cannot escape from, sins whose only solution is the Savior and the only Savior, Jesus. And I stand condemned before God in my sin until I recognize my own desperation and I repent of that sin, turning from my sin and turning to Jesus who forgives me and gives me a new life that is marked by his filling Holy Spirit. And what do I do? I immediately not only receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I begin the process of making him my Lord. It is acceptance of the free gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and moving into the Lordship of Jesus Christ in obedience to God's Word. So I immediately then align my life in obedience to Jesus because my whole life direction is now about loving Him and serving Him. And Paul says it this way, after a Damascus Road experience that completely changed his life where he met Jesus as Savior, he tells the church at Galatia, I am crucified in Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live by, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So now let's, let's just look at verse 39 where it says, This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. All right? So he's saying to those who are far away. Take a look at the pictures of these people. You saw these pictures two weeks ago. All types of people. All right? Now we didn't cover all ethnicity there in this collage, but all types of people from all over the world. Hear again that the gospel in the first declaration of Peter, right in his backyard, by the way, the gospel was shared in Peter's backyard. Is it shared in yours? The gospel that started to be shared in his backyard is for all people who are far away. That meant a lot of things, far away from God in their sins, but also far away in distant lands as well. All types of people, all types of people groups. The gospel is for us bringing it to the world. Let us hear the call of the gospel beyond our culture, the gospel beyond our comfort zones, the gospel beyond our church. Come to the children of the world choir. Come, bring, start right now, even right now, say, God, whatever extra money that I find somewhere, what extra uh, gift you give to me, any extra uh, money that I just encounter in the next three weeks, I'm going to set that aside so that I can give to the children of the world. Come and see the faces. I've got a picture right in my office of Autumn, who I met two years ago, who was one of those children of the world, and the gospel came to her because people like you and me joined God in the gospel, and we sent money all over the world through world help. And those kids were brought in, those orphans, those kids without parents, those kids who needed schooling and they needed housing and they needed clothing. They also got the gospel and I got to hug the gospel. I got to go down to my knees and hug the gospel and I said to my wife, take a picture now. Hear the call of the gospel to all who are far away. And you know, you know, someone across the street is far away from Jesus. You know it. And someone in distant lands. This week I called, I called a friend from our church, a guy that worships here. And I was just call, calling to check in with him to see if I could get a lunch with him. And he said, well, actually, I'm in North Dakota right now. And he's really in North Dakota for geese. And, and I really hope that he really, really pierces those ge- geese to the heart, if you know what I mean, with the gospel um, as he hunts. Uh, and then I also thought of another brother that is across the Atlantic right now. And you heard from two men here, one that's going to be in San Diego, another that's going to be in Virginia. We go all over the place now. We go all over the world to people who are far off. Now show the next picture than the one that I showed you a couple of weeks ago. This is just a picture of the diasporas that occurred from the fourth century BC, meaning after the Medo-Persian reign, the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem and the kingdoms of Judah, or of Israel and Judah, the, the, the 10 northern kingdoms and the 10 southern kingdoms were all completely wiped out by then. Only Judah had remained. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and conquered. And for 50 years, they took the Jews in exile to Babylon. And after that, the Medo-Persian reign occurs. And this is heading toward fourth century, heading toward the rise of the Roman Empire. And the known world extends all the way. You see the top corner there? You see the top corner? You see that? You see Rome? You see Italy right there? That's the longest arrow. See that long purple arrow there? 
That's where all those people went, and all those people would come back all the way. All of those Jews would come all the way back to Jerusalem to practice one of these festivals just like Pentecost. And what were they going to do after that experience? They were going to go back. They are going to go back to their wives, to their kids, to their lives, and to those places. And now look at Romans chapter 1. The Gospel of Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, where Paul addresses them. Paul, who came to Christ probably somewhere in the, mid, uh, in the early, mid-30s A.D., less than 30 years later, is writing a letter to the church at Rome. What do we know? That those diaspora Jews who were there who heard that first message from Peter, they went back with that same gospel and they shared it, and it grew the church of Jesus Christ in Rome because Paul says first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In less than 30 years, in less than 30 years, that gospel message has made it all the way to Rome. Wow, do you hear the call of the gospel? So where do we see ourselves in the text? Well, first of all, we're some of those far off. We're some of those far off. As I explained my personal testimony to multiple people, I explained explained to them, I had multiple brushes with the police, with the law. I got caught by my parents. I suffered the consequences of my actions, financial loss, a physical loss, all kinds of, none of those things awakened me to a new life with God. It was only, only, only the gospel, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that he was my personal and only savior, and that my sin had placed him on that cross, that I would face the wrath of God in hell if I did not turn from my sin and receive forgiveness from my savior. It was only that revelation that took me from being far off to God. And it's the same for you. We're some of those far off. Hey, praise the Lord. You're near. Thank God. You're now close. Second of all, we're called to the same Savior and Lord through the gospel. That very one that they call them to, that Peter calls them to, he is the same Lord, and he's the same Savior that we're called to through that same gospel. Third, we're called to convey this whole gospel message. How cool is it? that the gospel message comes through a guy who's like one of us, Peter, and the rest of the disciples too. That this is what God uses. He uses his very gospel people to share that gospel message. Do you see how the gospel calls? The gospel calls us to true repentance, to see our sin separating ourselves from God eternally, and that there is no way out unless we turn to the Savior Jesus. The gospel calls us to repent and turn away from that sin and turn to Jesus, and in turning to Jesus to begin a life of, of, of obedience to God, to baptize ourselves in the name of Jesus, to align ourselves with the name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus. And the gospel offers complete forgiveness from God and life with God through his gift of the Spirit. That's the gospel. And we're going to remember it here this morning, here and now. Come on up, team. Let's get ready to to continue and to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ through this communion. Jesus instituted this before he died. He said, this is going to be my, my, my body 
and my blood. This, this bread that we take, it's ingesting the remembrance of Jesus giving his body for us. This, this cup that we take, it's ingesting the remembrance of Jesus' shed blood for us that cleanses us from all sin. And we're supposed to take and eat, and we're supposed to do that in remembrance of him because our hearts can forget. Our hearts can become hardened to the gospel. And we say this morning, oh, Lord, not us. Lord, let us hear the call of the gospel in our lives to remember again that we were once helpless and hopeless, and that was a great place to be to meet Jesus. And Jesus took us from our helplessness and our hopelessness and gave us a new hope and a new life. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1.3. And we can remember that this morning. We can embrace it here this morning. Is your heart ready to worship God for his gospel? Is your heart ready to be the gospel to others? What gospel call are you hearing this morning? Listen. I've been calling up old friends and old family for the past month. I've been talking to them on the phone. I've been telling them about how God has been working on me and about how God has been changing me and how I've been reading this book about the wonderful spirit-filled life. And, and I've, I've finally come to realize that all I'm really doing is inviting all of the gospel to work in me. That's all I'm really doing. All I'm really doing is exactly what I could have all the time in Jesus. And then I'm on the phone with him and I say, and I call you to Jesus. Just yesterday, I called another person to Jesus. Just praying this morning at the nine o'clock pre-service prayer that we have in that glass room out there, you're welcome to come. I called all of those prayer members. I called them to Christ. And this morning, I call you to Jesus. I call you to the remembrance of what Jesus has done for you. I call you to the full heart embrace. I call for piercing again. That the Holy Spirit will remind you of all that you have in the gospel as we remember Christ's sacrifice for us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for making him both Lord and Christ, as Peter said. Thank you for taking us who were once far off and far away and drawing us near by the blood of Christ, as Ephesians 2.13 says. We're here this morning as worshipers. We're here this morning as lives that you could fill up with your spirit. We're here this morning as receivers again of the truth of your word and the power of your word. God, we, we want to be gospel people. And so, Father, we embrace the body and the blood of Christ this morning with faith to remember that what our lives really are about is what Jesus has done in and through us and given us a new life, removed us from the penalties of sin and given us freedom in his name. So we celebrate you, Father. We celebrate your son. All across the room here to the right, Father, receive the worship the prayers that are being lifted up. Father, we repent of sin. Oh God, take our sins away. We recognize how we have forsaken our Savior. 
and gone back to the foolishness of sin and we give it up here and now. Over here on the left side too, Father, hear the cries of your people to be filled with your spirit again to receive the very gift that you promised through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it around and he said, take this and eat this because this is my body which is given for you. As one body of Christ, as one church this morning, will you wait until all have received and let's receive this together um, in one great remembrance of our Savior.